0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Eschatology is a fancy word that you probably don't hear every day, but it's a word that theologians use to refer to last things. On the off chance someone asked you over lunch this week, what's your eschatology? They're asking, what do you think about the end of world history? How does this whole thing go down? How does everything get sorted out in the end? This is eschatology. And everyone, whether you know it or not, everyone has an eschatology. Some believe, for example, about what happens after death, how the world, the cosmos, will finally end, or maybe it won't, maybe it goes on forever and ever. Some understanding or even faint hope about final justice. This is eschatology. And your eschatology, and how firmly you believe that eschatology, affects the way you live your life right now. This is true for everyone. So if you believe that everything is essentially an accident of, you know, some subatomic particle just kind of bouncing around with no purpose, and that every living organism simply just ceases to exist at death, that sort of eschatology, if you really let that sink in and hold to it, it could, and it has, led to nihilism, could lead to depression, or a sort of hedonism, because what does it matter anyway? Or maybe you have an eschatology of more of the religious sort. You have a more religious impulse when it comes to your eschatology. And you have some sense that God's just going to burn the whole thing down in the end. (laughs) Destroy all of creation so that a few, a handful of true believers can escape to live some bodiless existence in some heavenly place. That more religious eschatology in the present could lead to a denial of the goodness of creation. And a life on earth that is marked by some dark pessimism. Just waiting on something terrible to happen so that your eschatology can be vindicated. Today we come to the end of Revelation. And the end of human history as we know it, as the Bible unfolds it. How does John answer the question, what's your eschatology? Is it a fiery kind of conflagration at the end of all things? Is it a simple ceasing of existence? How are we to understand this? Well, let's review what's just happened right up to this point. In John's vision, so the revelation of St. John is a series of visions, and we've been in the third vision most recently. And in that vision, we saw a couple weeks ago, Satan is restrained for this symbolic thousand years while the saints rule with Jesus. This is the age of the church, the millennial age that we are presently in. And at the end of that millennial reign, Satan is released for a brief time, but only to be defeated and thrown into a lake of fire. So at that point, all evil is finally dealt with. This is the end of history. John sees a great judgment of all the dead based on their names being written in the, in the book of life. Those who have refused the Lamb's love, have refused the invitation to the Lamb's wedding, there's judgment. There's a lake of fire that we read about today. That's the end. But that end is not the end. Because that end marks a new beginning, a beginning of something else. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. After this final judgment that John sees in his vision, we don't have a heavenly vision of saints existing blissfully on the clouds, playing harps, singing your grandmother's favorite hymns from the 1950s. It's nice as that might be for some. There's something else. It's a vision. It's a vision of a new earth as much as it is a vision of a new heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. God does not simply blast his good creation to smithered reams in anger and in judgment. He renews it completely. A new heaven and a new earth. This is actually a simple answer to eschatology. What do you believe? I believe in a new heaven and a new earth that the Lord will bring about at the end of all things, which will be the beginning of all things. But we also read curiously, the sea was no more. A new heaven and new earth and the sea was no more. Why this detail? What could John be referring to here? When God created the world, he set up waters above and waters below. And this is symbolically very important. The waters above were the firmament. This watery separation, if you were to visualize it, between heaven and earth. It's a watery barrier. In scripture, water always is a barrier. It's always a boundary marker. And John, earlier in Revelation, when he has his first vision in Revelation chapter 4, he sees a sea at the throne. Sort of separating this throne room of God from everything else. But now, heaven and earth are no longer separated. The sea, here it is again, the sea is no more. They are joined together. Heaven and earth are joined together. That barrier has been removed. Heaven and earth are joined together as it had always been God's plan. But that's not all. John sees something else. He sees a new city, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. And it's a bridal city. It's a city that is prepared as a bride, a bridal city in whom her husband will dwell. The dwelling place of God is with man, John sees. This, by the way, is what the incarnation we read about in our gospel lesson, when Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the ultimate reality it previews of God dwelling with man, perfect union. And now it's happening in a full and complete way. What does this mean? John tells us. Because the dwelling place of God is with man in this final vision, there are no more tears. Because the dwelling place of God is with man in this final way, there is no more death. Because the dwelling place of God is with man, there is no more pain. This is the Bible's eschatology. The bride, that's us, dwells with the groom in this new city, in a new heavens, and a new earth. It's a blissful vision. It's mysterious. Yes, this is bliss. And yet it's a material vision because it's a new city. It's a new earth. God will not abandon his creation just like he will not abandon his people. He will bring them to complete and full renewal. He will bring his creation and his people to glory, their fullest potential. This final redemption and renewal is what the Lord, uh, the, the world and what we all right now are longing for. We're longing for this sort of redemption. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. Even creation is crying out for this final restoration. This is Christian hope. Full, complete renewal and redemption. United perfectly with the Lord living dwelling in a new heavens and a new earth that are perfectly united we await the fullness of a new heavens and a new earth god's bridal city we will have an existence like ours now material conscious yet unlike ours now free of pain free of tears free of mourning free of death this of course all comes about because of the resurrection of our lord jesus christ this is what makes this possible when we die We go to be with the Lord. Yes, Paul says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. But one day, and this is the vision that Revelation is giving us, we will be raised from the dead in our bodies. And then what awaits us is a new heavens and a new earth. This is the Bible's eschatology. John has shared this vision. He's ended with a bang. He's ended here with a note of hope. The kids are crying out in excitement, ready for it also. (laughs) They're groaning and crying out, waiting for this new heavens and new earth. So John's here at the end of Revelation. The credits are ready to roll. I mean, he has ended with a hopeful, glorious bang. We can end our sermon series and we can end the sermon if we wanted to and have a really short sermon. But John's not done because there's one more vision that John sees. Through our readings, the first lesson and the second lesson, we actually see two visions. So here's how the second one begins. Verse 9 in chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So the angel starts to play the tape and it all looks very similar to what John saw before He says, he carried me on a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. John sees this vision of new Jerusalem coming down from heaven again. He's just seen this just a few verses earlier. What's going on here? Why two visions of the same city? John is a prophet. And there's another prophet who went up on a mountain and received a heavenly vision. In Exodus, Moses goes up on a mountain and he receives a vision. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He receives a vision. He receives divine blueprints for God's tabernacle that he is supposed to build, which will be the dwelling place of God with man in a very limited way. And his job is to go back down off that mountain with those blueprints so God's people can get busy building God's tabernacle. Something similar here, I think, is what's happening with John. In this last vision, he's just previously seen the final form of the heavenly city, that final city that we all hope for. Now he goes up on a mountain in this last vision to get the blueprints of a city that will be built in anticipation of this final city. He's seen the new Jerusalem in its final complete form. And now he gets the blueprints for the new Jerusalem that will exist in history. And here's what I want us to see. The church. The church is the city of God among the cities of men. The church, the people of God, the church is the city, this new city, the city of God among the cities of men. The church is this new Jerusalem. We will one day, of course, enter into the final form of this city where death is no more. But the heavenly city is the church right now that labors towards and lives in hope towards this final city. The church is a city. It's being built up as a city with anticipation for its final completion. So I'm going to take a brief tour of this city because John receives these blueprints, as it were, of the city. Lots of detail. And it would be really easy to just, if you're reading through Revelation, to skip over all of this and think, okay, this is kind of, you know, all these measurements and all of these jewels that are here, kind of inconsequential or just... What's your main point, John? But all of it is very important because all of it has echoes to other places in Scripture that help us understand the nature and what this city is to be. So first, this is a liturgical city that John sees. He sees 12 gates in this city with the names of the tribes of Israel. This city is the new Israel. This city is the church. And it's built on other stones, which are the apostles' The Apostles of the Lamb, the church is built up, Paul tells us, on the teachings of the apostles and the prophet, to bear witness to the Lamb. John is given a detailed description of the city, again, just like Moses was given a detailed description of the tabernacle. The city is bejewelled, just like the high priest's breastplate in Exodus. The New Jerusalem is measured out, its height, length and breadth. they're all equal. This is a cube city. Now of course we're not to take this literally. But what is this echoing? It's echoing the most holy place of the tabernacle, which was a perfect cube. If you go back and look at the measurements, it's a perfect cube. Again, the dwelling place of God in the center of his people. All of this temple imagery is being transported onto this new city, this new Jerusalem. The new city is being built up as a liturgical city. And here's the kicker. John says, and I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no temple, no physical temple. The Lord is present in this city, dwelling with his people. The city itself is the temple, the people of God, are the temple of the Lord. This vision of the church, this new liturgical city, it points us to the work of the city of God among the cities of men. And that is the worship of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. This is the primary thing that we do, The church is a liturgical city and fulfills her mission by faithfully being already what she is. The dwelling place of God with man, a new temple city spreading out into the world. So once again, I think we should make the point that we've actually been making all along the way in different ways throughout our study of Revelation. The most important thing that we can do as faithful citizens of this city, the new Jerusalem, is participate faithfully in the worship of the Lord Almighty and the Lamb. Declare his praises. Receive his word. Partake of the bread and the wine. The church is a city of God. Among the cities of men, and our primary mission in this city is liturgical, is worship. There's something else as we take a tour of this city. We've seen all of these materials that the city's made of that are hearkening back to the construction of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which are cluing us into this reality that this city's primary function is for worship, is a dwelling place of God with men. But there's something else important to see here as we move around and, and see what's happening in the city. Liturgy is never, worship is never separated from mission. It's not just like worship is kind of over here and mission is something Separate. It's not just like you can say, I'm really interested in mission and getting out there, getting my hands dirty as a Christian, but you know, worship faithfully on Sundays. Yeah, I can kind of, you know, take it or leave it and vice versa. It's not like you say, you know, my main, my main purpose is just to, 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 to go into worship and I'm not going to get my hands dirty and you know, no need for me to share my faith or live my faith out in the world because you know, really the most important thing is worship. No, these things are worship and mission are always connected in scripture Uh, Pastor John Piper, I know some of you are familiar with, he says mission exists because worship doesn't. There's a dynamic relationship always between mission and worship. Jesus says to the church in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. You are a light and you are a city. A city that shines brightly into the world. That is an attractional force. John sees this new Jerusalem in his vision, it's a city, shining brightly. He writes, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is a lamb. By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut. This is a city that is giving light to the nations. This is a hopeful city. Light is an attractional force. People are drawn to light. This city draws in the world. Even the kings, the leaders of the nation, they're bringing their gifts. They're bringing their cultures into the church to beautify it. It's interesting in the Old Testament, every time the tabernacle or the temple was built, the nations would participate. And bringing their gifts into it so it can be construction, constructed. Something similar has happened here in this vision of the New Jerusalem as it existing in Earth on its way to the final Jerusalem. The nations are being brought in. They're being brought in to construct and participate in building this new city. This is part of the mission. We think of Jesus' commission to the church in Matthew 28, to disciple the nations, baptize the nations. And John sees this happening as the nations come in. And and note here, the gates of the city, they're they're guarded by angels, which we might be able to think of as messengers, as, as leaders of the church. But the gates are always open. It's a sanctuary city. Open to all who will flee to it for refuge, for rest, to receive the light. The city of God is a liturgical city, and because it's a liturgical city focused on the worship of the Lord and the Lamb bearing light to the world, it is a missional city. With open gates, with nations flowing into it, liturgy and mission are dynamically related. But note something else about this missional city. There's a river of water of life flowing from the throne of God into the middle of the street with trees of life on either side, and the trees are for the healing of the nations sanctuaries in the Bible going all the way back to Genesis 2 in the garden are well watered places with rivers running through them in the garden there are four rivers that go through the garden and go out into the world Ezekiel has a vision of the temple also and in his temple very importantly water flows out from it and baptizes the world with this holy water the city of God the church is a well watered place too it's a garden city, a sanctuary city. The water of life that comes from Jesus Christ is in full supply here in the church. It's water that brings renewal. It's water that brings refreshing. It's water that brings eternal life, as Jesus has promised us. It flows out of the sanctuary city. It waters the, it waters the world, brings healing to the nations. As a church worships faithfully, life-giving water is to flow out of the church's worshiping life, giving life to the world. The New Jerusalem is the church, the city of God among the cities of men. But it's a sanctuary city whose liturgical life becomes a source of healing for the nations. Eschatology matters. Eschatology is really important. We are promised a new heavens and a new earth where weeping and death are no more. But eschatology, the hopeful and glorious future that we are promised, is brought forward into the church. Of course, incompletely. Of course, imperfectly. But the church is the city of God among the cities of men. And it exists like Christ and as Christ's body for the life of the world. This is a vision that John has in the divine sense of the word. He receives a vision from the Lord. John receives a heavenly vision. But it's a vision in another sense too. Vision is meant to stimulate our imagination. It's meant to motivate us, to capture us so that it affects the way that we live, it affects what we do. Where there's no vision, the people perish. We don't always live up to our our own visions. But John gives us a rich, detailed, vivid vision for the church. This is actually who we are. This temple, bridal, liturgical, missional city. Now we have to be it. We have to be who we are. The Bible doesn't give us one pithy vision statement for the church. It gives us vision images of the church as a city. A church as a city of lights. A church with As a city of water, a city built with precious stones, a city with trees that are bringing whose leaves are bringing healing to the nations. A city with gates, but gates that are open, a city that's built on foundation stones, which are the apostles teaching a city that is itself the temple of Yahweh. The church is a bridal city whose husband is the Lord and the Lord God dwells in the church. The church is a city of God that renews the cities of men. And you and I, we are citizens of this city right now. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, you have built a glorious bride for your son. Make his bridal city the city of light and life, flowing with the crystal water of the spirit and full of the fruit of the tree of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Amen.